okay, let's go, let's go see where the magic happens. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. It's me again, Stephanie Butnick, bringing you more delicious Passover fun. Passover is the ultimate food holiday, if you think about it. We eat haroset because it symbolizes the mortar that the Israelites work with in Egypt. Yuck, but somehow very delicious. We dip parsley in salt water to remind ourselves of bitterness. We love using food to tell a story. And in many ways, there's no better way to tell the Jewish story. Which brings us to today's episode, which I am very excited about. No one tell Mark, but it is all about food. First up is my trip to the Joiva factory. That's where I saw the jelly rings that you are about to consume at the Passover Seder table. I saw them being made. I left a golden ticket in one of the boxes of marshmallow twists, so uh, let me know if you find it. Also in this episode, you'll hear from Israeli chef Einad Moni, who runs the Taim falafel chain in New York City and now Washington, D.C. Her latest cookbook is called Shook, and it has the only Bamba-based recipe you will ever need. And, you know, Sum foods from our ads, but today we talked to one of the Sum sisters. More tahini, please. And finally, I got to sit down with the lovely Patty Yinich, the Mexican Jewish chef and host of Patty's Mexican Table on PBS. It's a lot of food and a lot of me, so buckle up. I've gotten to do a lot of fun stuff on this show, but this is possibly one of the best and most delicious trips I've ever taken. What you're about to hear is a tour of the Joiva factory in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. The Joiva Corporation is the standard bearer of halva, that delicious sesame-based tahini confection. The company also produces the classic jelly rings and marshmallow twists that appear on countless Passover tables throughout the country. The company was founded in the early 1900s by Nathan Rudutsky and today is run by Nathan's descendants, Richard Rudutsky and Sandy Wiener, who are cousins and who showed me around the factory. Oh, I would love to put on a hairnet. Oh, fabulous. This is great. <laughs> oh, these are beards? I got the wrong ones. Oh, I, yeah, I took it. Oh, that is, oh wait. Is it because we're in Brooklyn? <laughs> That's funny. The floor is a little bit slippery, so be careful. It's like sugar-coated? This is like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Can you both tell us where we are? We're at a factory that's been here for 70, 80 years, manufacturing all of our products in two buildings. And this is where all the magic happens. This is the uh, home of the Joypa Corporation. We've been in business for 114 years. And to see that not a lot has changed in 114 years. Obviously, some of the production has changed and some ingredients for the most part. Um, we were taught a lesson by our grandpa, Nathan, making reliable specialty food and candy and family first. Yeah, we'll have some interesting things to show you and talk to you about. Are we in the jelly ring floor? We are on the jelly ring floor. Jelly and marshmallow. Okay, yeah. So we'll speak up a little bit because the machine <laughs> that's running, this machine is called a mogul. It's standard in the confectionery industry to make starch and gummy type products. On one end of the machine are gel bites that we made yesterday. It goes out on the other side and then it gets put into our chocolate room. What's interesting about our factory is that because it's so old, it's a little bit of a maze. So we have some production challenges here. 
but we've also been here so long that everything seems to sort of work and everything's seasoned and yeah oh my god okay now we're in like a chocolate zone yes so okay. we bring the gel and we bring the unenrobed candy yes. into our enrobing department. The naked candy. Correct, the yes. naked candy. Okay. And then we dress the candy with chocolate. With special Joyva chocolate. So the candy runs under a curtain of chocolate. Whoa. Tell us about sort of the beginning, the, the founding, the creation of this company. It starts on sort of the Lower East Side, right? Yeah. Nathan came over with a recipe for halva back in 1904, probably, from Kiev. Went to the Lower East Side and came along with everyone else through Ellis Island, all the immigrants at the time, came to the Lower East Side, starting selling halva on the push carts, manufactured out of a garage on the Lower East Side. You can say the rest is history, but that's how it all got started. What? is halva. For someone who has never tried it, never seen it, what is it? It's a sesame confection. It's a combination of sesame tahini, which is crushed sesame seeds, corn syrup, sugar, and egg whites. Uh, so it's a candy, but it's healthier than your average candy bar. And now we can go downstairs okay. where we manufacture all of our halva. Yes, halva Which is floor. a totally separate department and a totally separate building. Okay. <laughs> There's halva everywhere. So there are basically three steps. Okay. Across the street is where we manufacture our tahini. Okay. We bring in about two to three million pounds of sesame seeds a year. A year, wow. And we clean them and we hold them, which means we take the shell off of the seed we process them. Over there. Over there on the other side. Okay. It's right across the street. The tahini gets pumped from that street, from that building, under the street into this building. So there's like a tube of tahini underground right now. There is a tahini right main. Now. Like, you know, <laughs> when there's a water main break on the Lower East Side or something? Yeah. So if Picture, this one broke, if this one broke tahini, you'd see tahini everywhere. spewing everywhere like a, a Passover geyser. miracle. Yep. <laughs> Passover miracle. I mean, exactly. for us, not for you. For you, exactly. <laughs> okay, that's amazing. Oh, wait, it's coming through. So what's coming so, through right now? The tahini comes over here, and we put that in these beautiful copper kettles. Okay. A lot of people say that their products are handmade. Mm -hmm. You can turn around and take a look. I'm seeing a lot of hands making a lot of things. And our halva Whoa. is hand-mixed oh in three different manners. Okay, can you describe what I'm seeing here? Because this is really... So we've added a mixture of egg white and corn syrup and sugar to a vat to of tahini. tahini. okay. And then we have a halva artisans that actually mix the halva with a paddle uh -huh. and then with their hands. This is a big paddle. They're basically rowing through this concoction. Halva is a unique product. If you mix it too quickly and too much, the strands of sugar and corn syrup do not mix evenly into the tahini. Okay. And then you can get halva that you cut that crumbles. Oh my God, or you get halva that too much like fudge. So there's a real fine line, okay. but uh -huh. still doing this it the same way heavy. that we've been doing it for 80 years. Wow. Um, a lot of the employees have been here for decades, wow. 40, 50 years. And this technique has been passed down to people that were here in you know the early 20s. Wow, that's amazing. 
fascinating because we're sitting in this room and we're surrounded by portraits of your relatives, of the people who sort of came before you in this company. So you're carrying on a family legacy. But at this point, you're really carrying on an American Jewish legacy or an, even an American legacy, right? Halva and Joiva in particular, you see it everywhere. It's sort of like, you know, every time I go to Murray's Bagels, I see the Joiva and it, it just makes me feel the sense of, of course it's here. It's, it's always here. So I'm curious, is there a pressure that you are this sort of beloved American brand and here you guys are in the trenches every day pumping it out for the people? I think that there's a bit of a sense of responsibility. This concept of Le Dorvador, this generation to generation thing was very important to my dad, my grandfather, my uncles. They were very active in the yeshiva of Crown Heights when it was first being built. I went to a private Hebrew day school. Everyone got bar and bat mitzvah. What really moved them was seeing the continuation of the next generation embracing the rituals, embracing the ceremony, embracing their Jewish identity, embracing their beliefs. And it was extremely important to them. And that ran hand in hand when Sandy and I came here. It was sort of the um, DNA that helped us as businessmen. I don't know, they conducted themselves in a moral and ethical way that was definitely informed by what came before them, by their Jewish upbringing, and it was very, very important for them. So where does the name Joiva come from? So the company started out as independent halva and candies. And then in um, some time in the 19, what did we say, 50s, 50s or so, um, they renamed it Joiva. My grandfather's daughter, my mom, her middle name was Joy. So they took the Joy and then the Va from Halva, they made Joiva. I think the Passover holiday is really an opportunity, right? To relive tradition, to make sure it's passed on. Yeah. You know, the four questions by the youngest. It's all it's all about what's coming next. The jelly, uh, rings. <laughs> jelly rings. Jelly rings. <laughs> dessert. You keep bringing it back to that, Stephanie. Yeah. I'm trying to be like all like, you know. Yeah. But you're right. Yeah. It's That's about true. the jelly it's rings. True. <laughs> my magical tour of the Halva factory in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So back in December, we did a live show in Encinitas, California at The Hive at Leechtag Commons. It was a ton of fun and we had a very special guest host with us. Liel couldn't make it, so we found the other coolest Israeli that we know. Einat Admoni is the chef and owner of the beloved falafel chain Taim, as well as Balabusta, the fine dining Middle Eastern restaurant. She is also the author of two cookbooks, Balabusta and Shook. She is smart and funny and just a little bit salty. We loved getting to talk to Einat about growing up in Israel with Yemenite and Iranian roots and being around mostly Ashkenazi Jews and their food. Food was a big part of her sense of family and belonging growing up. And today she has brought Israeli street food, food like falafel and hummus, or as she correctly pronounces it, hummus, as well as the delicious eggplant dish known as sabich to a hungry American audience. Let's hear a little bit from Einat Edmoni. Welcome, Enot. So Welcome. great to have you. Thank you. Wow. 
So once we knew that Liel couldn't be here with us, we knew we needed someone who... Another Israeli. That's yes. The, yes. He said we went from an Israeli who can eat to an Israeli who can cook, which he <laughs> thought was like a real upgrade. Yeah, also I heard he's conservative and then you have a super liberal. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we needed to balance everything out. So you grew up in Israel. Can you tell us where you grew up? So I grew up in Bnei Brak. <laughs> so funny. Whoa. When I was young and I was, I was living in Europe for many years and people asked me, where are you from? Israelis, I said Tel Aviv, and when I feel closer, I said Ramat Gan, and when I felt really, really close, <laughs> then just then I would say, okay, I'm from Bnei Brak. So what does that mean for people who don't necessarily... So Bnei Brak is a small town. I grew up on the other side, close to Ramat Gan, so it wasn't so... It was mostly secular, but Bnei Brak known as almost like Mea Sharim. It's a super religious, orthodox community. And, and uh, I mean, you're still wearing the black hat, so... <laughs> 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 and here is the Pelach. So when, when I grew up, my parents wasn't religious at all. But when I was around my teenager time, like 12 and 13, they became super religious. That's what every teenage girl wants, is for her parents to just slowly get more and more orthodox. It was super tough. Tough time for me because I don't want, they send me to many seminars, brainwash, and I hate that because I'm super spiritual these days and I want to get connected through love and not through fears. And I think that that's what they do. They get you inside. What were those be. seminars like? There is a lot of like people that was uh, like very famous soccer player that tell you how this is all like a evelavalim, like a matrix and this, like the whole explanation and the funny things that the story so there is a story about the kibbutz guy that is super secular and is traveling Thailand and then is in the it's like in a jungle there is a snake coming into him and he don't know what to do but he remember the Shema Israel and then he says Shema Israel and then the snake <laughs> just turn his head <laughs> and gone and this story I still hear them the same story with the snake with the snake with the soccer player with the thing like come on so, so I was never been religious. When I was 13, my mom, uh, she's got much more religious. So my mom put me in Orthodox school, only girls. You must have been so excited. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> I, was, I was a very fun kid. I have a lot of friends in my, in my school and it was super hard. But my dad, he passed away four years ago, but he was amazing. So I used to come to him and even though he, he was Yemenite, but not this, he grew up in kibbutz and he born in Tel Aviv. And he didn't have this like a Mizrahi kind of conflict you know but I knew I going to uh, how I can move me to my old school so I said dad you know they don't like Yaman either they're all Ashkenazi and they call me all kind of names and I'm really miserable they're praying for one and a half hour every morning I'm like it's so funny that my kids going to Jewish school and my son love it. Now I move him to school, but my daughter said, Mom, I don't want to pray. You want praying. There is God and she asked all these the right questions since she's five years old. Anyway so I went to my dad and cry, and a few days after, he said, today I'm going to take you back to the school. And he held my hand and got me back to the other school, the secular school. And I remember it was so excited. I remember somebody was screaming, Admoni is back. And I was like, <laughs> oh, it was a nice moment that I will, uh, could never forget. But you made up the fact that people were making fun of you. They did, not in this school specifically. Fun, nobody could mess with me. But like... Um, <laughs> It was a lot of like racism, you know, and I'm 48. So back in the days, it was today. I think some politician tried to bring it back today and make again the whole. You know, we as white appearing people, we know a certain kind white of American. White appearing? You're white. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> 
try telling that to the Juku people. I mean, it's it's all it's all provisional. We actually can't win. You know, you can't. But but sure, fair enough. And and we we know American racism from that side, though not from the side of people who are experiencing it every day. But I know nothing of Israeli racism from either side. What is it? Is it the same? Is it different? What's? It's similar. I think it's a little bit different than I think African community here, but it's kind of on the same notes. So I remember I was living in Germany for many years, maybe f- almost five, and I had a boyfriend there. We're coming back. He's Israeli. We're coming back to Israel, and he's excited. He tells his mom about me. She's all excited to meet me, but she never saw me. And we get into the airport, and I'm all excited, and I come to shake a hand. She look at me like, and turn ahead. I'm like hanging like that. I'm like, no, I just came back from Germany after years. <laughs> and I had few things like that. Just by color of my skin, she already assumed that my parents not, you know, very successful, which they're not. But uh, <laughs> that had nothing to do with it. So your dad is Yemeni. Where is your mom from? Uh, my mom born in Iran. She came to Israel when she was 10. And by age of 11, they put her in a foster home of Iraqi home. So she's like... She's like basically Iraqi now. She's both, I would say. Mostly Iranian. And she so- cheap like Iranian, yeah. <laughs> no. And so... When you were growing up, was it mostly Ashkenazi kids that you were around? So my neighborhood, yes. So my neighborhood mostly. My neighbor was Moroccan, which was great because I learned how to make couscous when I was very young. (laughs) But most of the neighbors and the old neighborhood was mostly Ashkenazi. Mm -hmm. And from a young age, you started cooking with your mother, right? In Mm -hmm. the kitchen? So I hated at the beginning because besides that she got religious... She was OCD, so I grew up standing maybe five or six years old with a copper tray with two kilos of rice grain going with my finger, just like this, one by one, one by one, to be sure that nothing have stones or black dots, so or it's broken for God's sake. So going well, you were like the kashrut checker. It's both. So later it was also because of that, but she was always, she grew up like that, that that's, they, they, and you know, it's different back then also, the rice you're getting in a big big sack in the sh- market it's not like or you know it's it's a different time so this and then peeling like cases of fava bean and breaking pomegranate so I did a lot of these jobs and later I enjoy it so I think but I cook since I'm very very young and so what were some of the dishes that you grew up making and your family grew up with I'm assuming it wasn't like gefilte fish knishes what are what are these other like beige no. foods that was not part of your <laughs> <laughs> no, we have sometimes guests. So my mom was that she's going to get brave and make some gefilte fish. And the funny things that my dad always look at her like with hatery. And then uh, he will take his chug, which is a Yamanite super spicy salsa. And he put, she will put a piece of gefilte fish, you know, to honor a Ashkenazi guest. And he will take a huge dollop of this chug and just put, you don't see the gefilte fish anymore. <laughs> it's just covered by chug. So we had some, my mom learned to make kugel on Shabbat so Shabbat morning we will have jachnun and kubane and some Iraqi dishes and then a kugel at the end so it was but what were the real foods you were making so for Friday night we will have a feast a serious so she start cooking from Thursday afternoon until Friday until the last minute when Shabbat is coming and there is like crazy and the house was always open and we always can bring friends so it's like a big meal every Friday and it's included my dad Yamanite soup and my mom fast and June, which is a pomegranate chicken with walnuts, and it's delicious. 
and she will make a Persian rice, she will make some salad. She's super healthy, so there is always vegetable, tons of salad, like fresh salads on a table, and then it will be also beef beside it. There is a lot, a lot of food. And then she will cook also for Shabbat, because they can cook on Shabbat morning and Shabbat afternoon. Can you tell us a little bit about the Kubana, the Yemenite breads that are like mm. the Saturday morning special? I see some nods of appreciation in the audience. Yeah. So, and by the way, like why were Ashkenazi Jews mean to you? Like you had the better food. Totally. Sorry, Ashkenazi doesn't have food. No, not at all. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit it. That Ashkenazi don't have food? It's no, that, not, not, it's not that. It's, it's sad food. <laughs> it's just it's just sad. It's like, you know, I went to a friend Ashkenazi and they called me to see if I won one matzo bowl or two. <laughs> I'm like, my mom will do 20 to be sure that nobody run out. Like, <laughs> all right. It's more, I think when you go to Moroccan house or Mizrahi or Sephardic house, it's happy. It's colorful. There is many colors on the table. There is a lot of different things. And I think it's, sorry. I, I apologize in advance. I can't, I actually am in no position to defend Ashkenazi cooking because I'm from a long line of people on both sides who can't cook at all. I mean, my mother wouldn't starve you. She'd order a second Domino's pizza for you yeah. if that's what you wanted. But, you know, it's true. My grandfather, in fact, my grandpa Walter didn't like spices at all. So my mother grew up never eating garlic, for example. I mean, my wife now cooks with garlic and my mother can't stand it because she grew up with unspiced food. That's like, so they not get alone. They, it's, it, it's an issue because my parents walk into our house and our house does smell of spices and my mother's like... I feel like a knot would walk into your house being like, I can't smell any spices. Yeah, it would. We please come cook for us. So Ashkenazi, we all know, right? That's people who come from Eastern Europe. Sephardi, those are the Jews from Spain who are expelled in 1492, whatever. And Mizrahi. And Mizrahi. Can you explain that? Yeah. Because it's sort of a an underloved and underrepresented section of our, our, our community. Unless they're named Isaac. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so until recently, everybody know just Jews, Ashkenazi. Jews, yeah. And later they said, oh, there is the other Jews, the Sephardic. And that's mean it's people that flee from Spain and went usually to North Africa and that area. But there is the Mizrahi that they came from the east. Mizrahi is east in Hebrew. And that's mean it's Iraqi and Yemen and Iran. So... The one with the best food. So then when you came here and started cooking and started opening your own restaurants, of which you now you own eight. eight, that was at the beginning of what's become a real revolution in the way we think of Jewish food in America, because you weren't doing Ashkenazi cooking. When I opened Taim in 2005, back then we had three different kind of falafel. I was super excited. It was a tiny... So I start from fine dining. A lot of people don't know that, but I start from a very fancy-smancy restaurant. I start in Karen. It's a big restaurant back then in Israel under Chaim Cohen for two years. And then I came to New York right after and worked for a very, very famous chef. And then I opened Falafel, which was a shocking. It's basically like a small storefront, the original ones. Like with 20 meters. It's like 200 square feet of hole in a wall in a West Village in a kind of a... Sh Who's been there? Wow. It's amazing. This is good. Yeah. It's delicious. So not enough, fries. though. Good, but not enough. <laughs> so what happens? So besides we had three different kind of falafel, I had sabich, which is my favorite sandwich in all world. And it was tricky. People didn't know what is that. Uh, the first article we ever had about Taim was sabich story. And even, I think, back then, it's 15 years ago, back then, even Israeli, not all Israeli, knew what is sabich. Like, I grew up in Ramat Gan next to the original sabich in Negba, and it's like, sabich is on the name of somebody, but also sabich, it's 
from the word Sabach, which is mourning. But this a guy that basically came to Israel, I think, in the 40s or 50s and used to sell a small sandwiches to bus drivers. And then he realized, oh, there is like kind of a business. And they open a small shack with only Sabich. And Sabich is fried eggplant, a hard-boiled egg. And he used to do the hard-boiled eggs, you know, the brown eggs from the morning and hard-boiled eggs and amba. Amba is like a chutney. It's fenugreek and green mango. It's delicious and tangy and amazing. And that's basically the three components that make a amazing sandwich with some other stuff. It's Iraqi food. It's Mombasa. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of not Iraqi food, the, but the, the Israeli... The proud Iraqi right there. The it's Isra- Iraqi. <laughs> the Israeliest of foods and my yeah. children's favorite food is bamba. Bamba is my yeah. favorite too. You include a recipe in your latest book for mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a cauliflower mm-hmm. with bamba, tahina. Was that just sucking up to the American market for bamba? I mean, because now Trader Joe's has bamba. I mean, why? Yeah, uh, why? And what's the future uh, of bamba I always bamba jokes about all the uh, uh, allergic that people have here. Israelis are very snooty about our peanut allergies. I think <laughs> that now we have allergy too. But when I grew up, I never heard about somebody that... Now I'm getting... I have a restaurant. I'm getting people with a card with 25 different things that give me... I'm like, I'm sorry, you can't eat here. <laughs> you need to go home. Go home and cook for yourself. Uh, but I'm getting this card recently, you know, more and more and more. In Israel, my time. I know it's changing now because the food industry is changing as well. But I never heard about somebody that is allergic to anything. And the theory was because the little children were eating bamba. So the jokes, uh, I don't know. I, I think some people said that they found out that it's because the bamba, possible. Because uh, I know I gave my kids when they're three months and it's so easy to yeah. eat. I gave them everything they're not allowed. I want to check. Let's see what's going to happen. <laughs> so bamba's like... I have to, so you know. Yeah. My way of describing it is like a softer cheese doodle that's peanut. I don't... The, the, but it's not cheesy. <laughs> no, I know, but I'm saying like, like that's what it looks like. People think it's like, like a cheese doodle. Yeah, With just peanut butter. Yeah, how would you describe it? It's much better than that, though. Yeah, it's like a, it's like yeah, yes, okay, yes, it's this one. <laughs> so and I want to do something. So this is a dish I create when I open Bar Bolognat. Now it's closed and I move Balabusta there. But I really want to create a restaurant that is more celebrating. Israeli cuisine and by that is not to have really the Arabic and Palestinian is to have like ingredients from Israel and things that for me interpretation of my mom and my Moroccan neighbor exchanging food like fresh couscous with chorezabzi and things like that and Iraqi food and things that I grew up and what I think it's Israeli including ptitim which is the Israeli couscous you all know but make it really interesting and elevating that and bamba was the first things I want to use and so the idea is that Bamba have rice and peanuts. So I basically take cauliflower and put rice butter and make it super crispy and make tahini with tons of crushed peanuts and some spice. And yeah. everyone can buy the book and get the recipe. <laughs> Thank so you. So we're not, I mean, you're going to stay here all night. But before I let you go, this book is called Shuk. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the pronunciations of things. It's That's, a market. So can you tell us the role of the Shuk in Israeli culture? So when I... I got some comment from somebody on Instagram that look, why uh, we have also market? I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm They're sorry. They're like, we have Gelson's. I'm sorry. You have farmer market, which I adore and love, and it's nice, but it's quiet. And I, I open market shook. It's it's like my house. It's like the way I grew up. It's everybody screaming and it's very vibrant and there is characters there. And every time I'm in Israel, every time I always get apartment the closest to the market so I can walk every day and feel just like back to my childhood. And could America do a shook? No. Or, no. Like that? No. No. We're just Maybe, not culturally I don't capable. Know. Now yes. 
Maybe now, yes. But it's, it's a one-stop shop. It's, you have everything. You have souvenirs and you have like... And back then on steel, there is like an Eden store for the Russian to get like the pork because, you know, they don't want to be visible. So it's in a one of the side streets. The secret pork and, store. Yeah. I'm going to say a word and you're going to tell me how to correctly pronounce it. Hummus. Hummus. <laughs> Does it make you mad? Tahina. People, yeah, tahina. No. Tahina. Sabich. Challah bread. Oh. Challah. Thank you. You sound like my joke, kids. The Hala. big joke is people who say challah bread aren't real Jews. I actually, Hala. I have a confession to make. I grew up saying challah bread. Well, you weren't a real Jew. I so <laughs> like when people go to Taim and order a hummus, does it like make you crazy? It's used to, but like, well, I cannot change the world, you know. <laughs> step by step, slowly. 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 Hummus. It's hard. Hummus. hummus. Let's all say it together. Hummus. Hummus, you see? Look, we're doing this. It's like your husband asked me why they don't say tahini. I said, yeah. because can you say ha? I don't think tahini. so. Tahini. Well, we're confused why it's tahini in America and tahina in Israel. Tahina. Yeah. Tahina. Tahina. And now that money, thank you for being our Jew <laughs> of the Week. Yeah. Thank you. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Thank you. 
Amy Zeidelman is the co-founder and CEO of Soon Foods, one of our favorite sponsors. We like their tahini products so much that we invited Amy on the show to tell us about bringing tahini to the American market and what it's like running a company with her sisters. As you can imagine, their parents are very proud. Amy Zeidelman is the co-founder and the chief executive officer of Sum Foods, which she runs with her two sisters. You've heard about their tahini products on our show. And we don't let all of our advertisers be guests, only the ones who are going to bring us cookies and only the ones who have something to say, actually. And there's a lot of really important tahini issues to discuss that I know our listeners have. We are so happy to have Amy in Argo Studios with us. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thanks for having me. What'd you bring us? I brought our Zoom double chocolate tahini cookies for you guys. Nice, chewy cookies. While Mark samples them, yes, I I'd, will. I'd like to ask you the seminal question of the day. Hummus or hummus, mm -hmm. as, as we call it here. It's this kind of staple American food by now, right? Yes. Sabra hummus is a sponsor of the Super Bowl. It's the official dip of football, whatever. Tahini, which is so seminal, which is the main ingredient in, in hummus, which is the greatest thing ever, is this kind of step bastard child of dips. Why? I think that other people didn't really make the effort to teach people what hummus really was when it started. It's much easier introducing a product and making it as simple for people to digest both physically and kind of mentally as possible. And so when they decided to describe hummus to people, they really captured this idea of the benefits of the chickpea. Right. And so tahini just went flying, like you said, under the radar, like a bastard stepchild. So to be clear, Chickpeas are sort of garbage. The thing that ties the hummus together is the brilliance and delicacy and the quality of the tahini. Am I correct in this assumption? Yes. And I was hoping, Liel, that you'd come out with a statement like that because I don't like chickpeas that much. And so it's always kind of been... You mean uh, garbanzo beans? Garbanzo beans, exactly. <laughs> so, Amy, what is tahini and why is it this underloved, underrepresented food item in the American market? Well, tahini is a paste or it's an ingredient made from 100% roasted and pressed sesame seeds. It's very popular in Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, but also North African and Asian cuisine. If you really think about the places where sesame seeds carved out their place in dietary preferences and it's used as a fat. So as a substitute for butter or olive oil or even cream cheese or mayonnaise in recipes. And it's most familiar in the American market because of its application in hummus. And so what's interesting is ever since we started Zoom, we start out talking to people by saying, are you familiar with tahini? And still, even seven years into this, most people say no. You're like, I honeymooned there. Right, exactly. Right. Yeah. Oh, tahini, ooh, are you selling ice cream? Right. And I say, oh no, I tahini, wish. is she a rapper? Right, exactly. <laughs> I will say three things. First of all, I have tahini with, I think literally every meal. You have tahini in your veins. No, I, I really, I mean, this is the same. one thing that I have three times a day. Davening and tahini. Uh, exactly. And in the same intervals too. Second of all, it used to be completely impossible to find even halfway decent tahini in this country, which is why I used to smuggle it in my suitcase every time I went to Israel. Third thing, the sum tahini is amazing. Thank you. I really love it. How did you start? I'm the youngest of three sisters, and my middle sister has lived in Israel since 2008. She decided to do a gap year in Israel. She did Young Judea, and when she came back to the States to go to college, she realized she like, just- There's no good tahini. I right. gotta make Aliyah. <laughs> exactly. I have to get over there. She realized, oh, I don't really relate to American college culture. I want to go study in Israel. And my parents, who put us through Jewish day school, have always preached Zionism to us, have finally had to bite their tongue and say, okay, great. We, you know, <laughs> 
actively support <laughs> right. you moving Hitchcock. to Israel. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, now do you have to be test. that Jewish? Right. <laughs> <laughs> that far. The funny one is the middle one. You know, always had the issues, hated Judaism, hated Jewish day school, and now she lives in Israel, married to an Israeli with two amazing Israeli children. One, one of her of daughters, whom? by the way, is named Liel. Hallelujah. I know. I love her name. And so when Jackie in 2011 was dating her now husband Omri, Omri has been in the Tahina, or as we refer to it here in the States, Tahini industry for now over 15 years. And my oldest sister studied business. And when she met Omri, she realized that, wow, this tahini in Israel is way better than any tahini available in the American market. So she called me the bastard third child still in college saying, I need you to do some market or research. Or as your parents called you, the accident. Right, right. exactly. The happy accident. Ex- uh, you. Specifically. I was 15 months younger than my sister. Oh, really? You she are cried. the happy accident? Yeah, she cried when she found out she was pregnant <laughs> with me. My mom. Yeah. When we started doing our market research, we found, Liel, exactly what you described, which is that we could only find tahini on the bottom shelf of the international aisle. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what it was. Right. And if somebody did know what it was, they used it once to make hummus, and then they threw it away six months later. So we use it when we make falafel, and then we always throw out the leftovers. Exactly. I'm confessing here. And because of that reason, we realized that not everybody was going to take to hummus or this tahini sauce immediately. We really wanted to make it accessible to the American market. So we decided to develop a chocolate tahini spread. And so this chocolate tahini is one of the ingredients that we use to make these delicious Jewish... Very ju- delicious Jewish, Jewish, Jewish chewy cookies. cookies. Exactly. You got it. And... Um, Newish Jewish. Newish Jewish chewy <laughs> cookies. And we realized that there was this opportunity to educate the American market about what tahini is, how you can use it, and also really what inspires us every day, the health benefits. They're crazy health benefits, right? Insane. Or so I tell myself. Yeah, no, they're <laughs> it's like gorge on it. Still high in fat, but um, all the good fat. The fats. good fat. The exactly. Good fat, the right. good fat. Sesame seeds By the way, are... that's the title of my autobiography. <laughs> the good fat. <laughs> Leon, My life. I yeah. never knew that you were heavy because I had never seen a picture. He doesn't until... sound heavy. <laughs> no, you don't sound heavy <laughs> until you described yourself as heavy when you described yourself going to Burger King and ordering the uh, big, everything the, everything without the burger. And yeah. I just loved that entire sentiment because I used to do that when I kept kosher growing mm-hmm. up. So I could really relate to that. But it's one of the best non-animal sources of protein, calcium, iron. It's high in all the great benefits of good fats like omega fatty acids. It's a great substitute for mayonnaise or maybe some other ingredients that have less health benefits and it's just an incredibly inspiring if you're looking for a great salad dressing that isn't oil you just found it exactly or a great salad dressing that's not dairy what's so exciting for the kosher market is that tahini can provide that creamy consistency in soups or in salad dressings and you don't need any dairy so can you tell us about the products that sum foods offers and how people can get their hands on it so we sell three products right now tahini which is the paste made from ground sesame seeds a chocolate sweet tahini spread which is just three ingredients tahini powdered pure cane sugar and cocoa powder. So it's like our version of Nutella. It's not made with nuts, though, with no dairy as well. Also, Parv. Also, I hate Nutella. Oh, so you I'm, do? Yes, I know. This is, that this might is, be your most controversial there, this view This drives today. people insane. Oh my God. Have you tasted our chocolate tahini? So no, I'm going to try your chocolate tahini because I would like a nice spread that's not Nutella. Nutella. Never Nutella like Nutella. Nutella make your teeth feel fuzzy? Nutella is just gross. It's one of it's like beets and hearts of palm. It's one of the three things I just Listeners don't eat. Listeners, like write in. Me too. Write in and tell Mark he's wrong. When you invite me for Shabbos dinner, no beets, hearts of palm, or Nutella. But I'm going to try this. 
What's the third the product? The third is date syrup. It's our Ceylon, which is 100% steamed and pressed dates. So it's a great alternative sweetener to honey, agave, or maple syrup. Another thing Israelis oh. are obsessed with. <laughs> dates. What is, it, what is it like working with your sisters? I love it. I'm the youngest of the three girls between me and my oldest sister's four years. So we were always kind of missing each other. When I went into high school, she went to college and, and kind of so on and so forth. So when we started working together, we started spending the most time together. My sister that lives in Israel is only 15 months older than me. So as you might be able to imagine, we fought a ton growing up and we really didn't gather our relationship strong until she lived in Israel. So this has just brought us a really unique purpose and drive and uh, something that I think we have in common that we might pass down to our children. It's just it's really special. I'm your, really blessed. I have a stake here, but like what, what are the parenting tips? How do you raise daughters who like each other? Um, <laughs> what did your parents, parents do? They always made us share a bathroom. <laughs> uh, you should bring my parents on the show, honestly, because I just think that they're brilliant and their approach to infusing Jewish values into our upbringing was really important for our family. We didn't really get into Judaism until a little later in life. My dad kind of became Baal Tshuva or interested in being more observant throughout my middle school and high school years. So we had this interesting transition where values, Jewish values, started being infused to our lives when we were even maybe a little older. Yeah, but teenagers would usually hate that. It's like all of a sudden dad's gone crazy. Right. And we thought he went crazy. We thought he joined a cult. We were like, what is happening here? But we also went to Jewish day school since first grade. So it was always, it was just a right. very interesting transition. But we're really lucky. Our parents... They're both entrepreneurs, too. So I think that it kind of ran in our bloods to be able to start a business together, know that we have to solve problems together. We also played sports. And since we're so close in age, sometimes we played sports together. Just that teamwork mentality, I think, really bled into us. So what do they say about the company? Are they so excited? Oh, they're felling. You have no idea. They're like our best ambassadors. The pantry is stocked full of so much tahini. They just give it out up the wazoo. I think they might buy all the product from our website, but we haven't been able to prove that yet because it doesn't always go to our home address. I will say in my role as class mother in my kids' day school, the gift to teachers this year has been copies of Adina Sussman's Sababa Amazing. and Big Vats of Soup. That makes me so happy. I wish people could see me grinning from ear to ear. Your parents sent it to them. My, right. my parents sponsored <laughs> it. And a card sponsored from your by mom. the Zeitelbins. Exactly. <laughs> Amy Zeitelbin, thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Finally, last but not least, one of my favorite interviews with possibly the most delightful human on the planet, Mexican Jewish chef Patty Yenich. You might have seen her on PBS, where she hosts Patty's Mexican Table, a travel food show that takes viewers around Mexico and showcases the country's wide variety of cuisine. She grew up in Mexico City with Ashkenazi Jewish grandparents in a very diverse Jewish community made up of families from across the world. She tells us about gefilte fish Veracruz and the other ways her family embraced Jewish and Mexican cuisine. Here's Patty Yenich. I am here with Patty Yenich. She is the Mexican Jewish chef and host of Patty's Mexican Table on PBS and the author of many cookbooks, most recently, Mexican Today, New and Rediscovered Recipes for Contemporary Kitchens. Hi. And I'm here with Stephanie, and I'm so happy to be here. I feel like we should start from the beginning. You grew up in Mexico City. Yes. You were one of very few Jewish students in your school. Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and then also, you know, 
like the childhood dishes that were part of your upbringing? So Mexico City, born and raised. I'm the youngest of four girls. And I grew up really on the outskirts of the Jewish community because my my parents weren't that involved with the community. They decided to put me and my sisters in a school that didn't have any religious affiliation. So we were two Jews in a class of maybe 150, but we did participate in the Jewish community a lot through my family. So my grandparents on both sides, on my paternal side, my parents came from Poland before or around the time of the Mexican Revolution. So when it all ended, so very early on, they fled the... When was the Mexican Revolution? It started 1910. Okay. And it ended 1917. And they must have come in those teen years when they were very, very young. So they came through Veracruz, which is the port in the Gulf Coast where most immigrant waves have come through into Mexico. And then on my mother's side... My grandparents came from Austria and Czechoslovakia when Czechoslovakia was one country. And they fled the Second World War. Most of their family died in the Holocaust in concentration camps and such. So I grew up with two sets of very, very different grandparents. On my maternal side, my grandparents came to Mexico and started with nothing. My grandmother started sewing hats and sweaters and blankets, but then they became very, very successful. And then they started getting into silversmithing and they ended up being very successful silversmiths. And they would make these gorgeous, you know, silver tea sets and cutlery for families with their seals. And so my mom grew up in a very sophisticated, household where they spoke German and English and she was sent to finishing school in France and she had a tutor so very very sophisticated and very sophisticated European food. On my father's side my grandparents came from Poland from tiny little shtetls. My grandfather always told the stories about how he grew up eating herring and potatoes and herring was only on the holidays so it was either herring fried or pickled or breaded and he was so grateful of being in Mexico and having access to all these bounty of ingredients and flavors and he still found so much joy by eating a white onion as if it were an (laughs) apple and they were humble didn't have much money at all and they just gave everything they had to those Shabbat meals so my mom who was very you know refined married my dad who grew up eating boiled potatoes and boiled chicken and it was a marriage that wasn't meant to last but (laughs) it lasted like 25 years but anyway I remember the best meals in my Bob's house. Even though they had very, very little money, she made sure that in the very Jewish way, there was always fish and a meat. So there was always gefilte fish, and she would have the white traditional gefilte fish, but then she would have the gefilte fish a la veracruzana, which you find in most Jewish Ashkenazi homes. So veracruzana is a typical sauce from Veracruz, where... 
Spain and Mexico met. So you have tomatoes, pickled chiles, olives, capers. And so instead of being cooked in fish stock and then eaten cold, the fish patties, which are made with red snapper, which is like such a warm tasting fish, are cooked in a rich tomato, spicy, briny sauce. So it's just a different experience. And then she made matzo balls and she had her own schmaltz always. And she used to welcome us with big bowls of guacamole topped with creaminess. And you could either make a taco or eat it on top of hala. And her food, which is, she really weaved her Jewishness with Mexico in a beautiful way, as the Jewish community has done for centuries. It seems like everywhere Jews ended up, they adopted the foods and the, the spices and the flavors of their new home. But they also, you know, they still like a filter fish, right? Like they yeah. could have had any kind of fish, right? That sounds like a filter fish everyone would grow up wanting to eat. Yes. When did you learn that people actually hated gefilte fish? I grew up to really love it. And I also really grew up to love um, pichai. She used to make pichai, which I grew up loving. And then I added crane on top, which she made also at home. And for me, it was the most delicious thing. And I realized that both pichai and gefilte fish weren't loved by everyone when I took some friends from school who weren't Jewish to my grandmother's house and they were <laughs> totally disgusted. And you were like, have some jellied calf's foot. Exactly. Like horseradish. Exactly. <laughs> or she used to make chunt and I used to devour, you know, the stuffed chicken's neck with the bread and my friends were like, what are you doing? And we're talking about Mexico where people eat tongue and pig's ears and absolutely everything. So I think it was it was when I was older. So I want to go back to the guacamole with gribbonus because yeah. that to me is a genius and insane combination. Will you just describe what gribbonus is and maybe describe yeah. what guacamole is in case someone hasn't had either of those foods yeah. somehow? Okay, so for Mexicans, guacamole and really avocado is such a crucial ingredient. You just use it with everything. And guacamole is a side dish that you do on antojitos, that it can be a meal on its own. If you just have tortillas and guacamole, you're done. You have a little queso fresco and some chipotle, you have a party. Guacamole is nothing but mashed, ripe meat of the avocado. And from there, Mexico is divided. Half of Mexicans will add lime juice to it. Half of Mexicans won't because they feel that the flavor of the avocado gets covered with the lime juice. But I really feel like lime and avocado go half and half. And then it typically has some fresh chile, some white onion, some cilantro. It is a total fallacy that it always has tomato. And I will not add tomato to my guacamole. Adding gribbonus is an unusual thing to do. Adding gribbonus may sound like a strange thing, but in Mexico, people eat chicharrón a lot. And chicharrón is the fried pig skin. And that is a super common ingredient. I mean, it's such a common ingredient that kids have it in their lunchboxes. You fight over it. Chicharrón is like potato chips for America. Fried pig skin is Mexico snack. Because Jews don't eat pig, and my grandparents, I mean, they weren't kosher, but they did not eat seafood or shellfish or they just didn't keep a kosher kitchen, yeah. but they abided by all the rules. Yeah. So grievances are fried chicken skin mixed typically with a lot of caramelized onion. And as the skin fries, it fries in its own fat. So it's really incredibly flavorful because it creates the schmaltz that then you can, it's like the Jewish version of lard. So the grievances are little 
chicken chicharrones, you know, instead of made of pork, made of chicken. So if you think about it, it does make sense because because there's it's very common to eat the chicharron, to dunk the chicharron into the guacamole as if it were chips, more than chips. For Jews who can't do chicharron, yeah, it's, it's a substitute. It's like a kosher pork rind. Okay, I just gave you a half an hour of nonsense and no. you just said it in a sentence. No. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> What are some other Jewish-inflected Mexican dishes that you grew up with? Oh, there are so many. And the crazy thing is that the Mexican Jewish community, the Mexican Jewish cuisine is rich, it's diverse, it has super rich roots, but there's not just one kind because the Mexican Jewish community is very complex. First of all, people think that Mexican Jewish cuisine is just a couple of dishes where you throw a jalapeno into it and that makes it Mexican. <laughs> but there have been Jews in Mexico since the Spanish arrived in Mexico and the Jews were kicked off of Spain. I mean, it's proven that in those three caravelas that Cristóbal Colón set sail with, the niña, had marranos, the, what they call marranos, yeah. the converted Jews. The, yeah, la yeah, niña, niña, la pinta. And the Santa Maria. <laughs> yeah, in the Santa Maria. So there were Jews there. And then since the Spanish arrived, there were waves of immigrants and Jews that fled that peninsula. But when they came into Mexico, because Spain installed the Inquisition in Mexico for the 300 years that it had Mexico as a colony, Jews couldn't openly be Jews. So there are more Jews in Mexico than you would think and many more people that have Jewish roots than you would think. Even Frida Kahlo's husband, Diego Rivera, he used to say that he was a, a Jew, that he had a part of his family that was Jewish. Of course, you always like to side with the downtrodden and persecuted. But we'll take him. <laughs> oh, yes, we'll <laughs> take him, of course. So in Mexico, it's very divided. You have the Ashkenazi Jewish community. Then you have the Sephardic community, which is divided. You have the Shami and the Haladi. And then you have the Turkish Jews. And then it's all so divided, Stephanie. It's so complex that there's different schools for each community. There's different synagogues and there's different foods. So if you went to my Bobes for Shabbat, you would have matzo ball soup, which you garnished with cilantro, white onion, lime juice. Sounds Sometimes amazing. she would add a piece of corn as if it was a sopa azteca, you know. She would have the chicken with, you know, the tzimes with the prunes and the carrots and some chipotle in there. She would make the babka with Mexican chocolate wow. and canela, Mexican cinnamon and Mexican vanilla. You know, there's a big array of food that's in the Ashkenazi repertoire. But then Ashkenazi Jews called Sephardic or Middle Eastern Jews, we call them Arab Jews. So I had friends in that community and when you went there, it was crazy you had the raw kipe served with pico de gallo you had oh my god the fried kipe dipped in guacamole drizzled with tahine and drizzled with an ancho chile sauce there's this dish also in the shami community which is pita bread and then they marinate the lamb with a gazillion things you know like red bell pepper pureed with tomatoes and parsley and but in mexico they add tamarind and ancho chile paste and it is to die for and then you eat that open pita with tine and with salsa verde 
And I mean, I could go on and on and on and yeah, on. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. You guys should explore more because people want options for their holidays. Mm -hmm. And in terms of ingredients, we're living in an incredible age where you can find any Mexican ingredient in the U.S. So to offer that repertoire of new dishes, it enriches more the American theme. I mean, the Jewish story, the idea of the conversos who couldn't use pork in their stew. That's one of our entries in the 100 Most Jewish Foods, the Adafina, that what marked you as, as a Judaizer or whatever you were called, was that you didn't use lard, you didn't use pork, and you used, you know, you baked things on the Sabbath. Like, there were ways in which Jewishness, and also in any culture, right, like food is survival, food is everything. And so I think what you've done is so fascinating because even just describing the different foods the Jewish communities in Mexico ate, you're telling me stories about those communities and where they come from and what's important to them. Being a Jew and be being part of a group of people that has had to historically move from one place to another, food has been the space and the area that has kept us connected throughout the world. And it's the way that we've been able to survive. And it's the way mostly that we've been able to adapt. So, for example, from my grandmothers, they went through so much, Stephanie. The way that they made Mexico their home was by cooking their foods. And they started infusing them and blending them and weaving into them what their new home and their new country gave them. So I feel like it's the most humble and grateful thing to take what's yours and mix it to what the new place where you land gives you. You know, it's it's a beautiful thing that we can mix who we are in a pot. So will you tell us about your PBS show? So Patty's Mexican Table is now on its eighth season. Wow. And it airs nationwide on PBS stations. It's also on Amazon Prime. We're very lucky and I feel very grateful because this year we got the James Beard for the cooking show and I feel like it helped put Mexican food in that table mm. of world mother cuisines, you know, like Mexican food and Mexican people have a place there. The show is part travelogue, part cooking, but we're now in the eighth season, so every season we go to a different region of Mexico and explore that regional cuisine and those traditions and those customs. And then I go to my kitchen in Washington, D.C. and show people how they can make that accessible food at home. And it's been an incredibly humbling experience because every time I go back to Mexico I realize how little I know of my home country how much it changes but then when I come back here I realize how much I have to learn about my new country you know of America so it's I'm very grateful because this show has allowed me to continue to learn and connect with cooks and chefs north and south of the border and to really try to create these spaces where people can share who they are through food, which is the best way to go in. So something we talk about on the show a lot is this idea of ashkenormativity. Oh. Which is like the assumption that everyone, all Jews are from Eastern Europe and yes. then go straight to New York and then, I don't know, watch Seinfeld and eat bagels. Um, yeah. And there really is a big food. And, you know, we're pushing back on that, right? Pushing back on what Jewish li life and what Jews look like today and are like and, and live like. It seems to me that food is a big part of that. Do you feel like you got to America and everyone was like, oh, you're Jewish. You must eat kugel. So much in in both directions, both in the Ashkenazi way. Oh, you're Jewish and you must love bagels or <laughs> oh, you're Jewish and you must do break the fast with like how many Americans do it, which is like an open 
door policy. People come and go and there's spreads and there's... No, Mexicans break the fast, seat it down, and there's you break it with honey cake and some fruit, but then you have to sit down and eat your soup and eat your chicken. and your, I mean, it's a seated affair. People can just come in and go. So very different traditions. Much but more civilized, I think. It's that Mexican part of if you're going to eat, you're going to give that meal the full respect that it deserves, which is you sit down at the table, you take out your plates, even if you're going to wash 20 or 30 plates, no paper plates, because you're going to serve your, you know, the people that are coming and there's going to be hot soup. It's just nurturing, it's feeling, it's like love, you know? So when we moved to the U.S. and we started being invited to the Break the Fast, I didn't get it. <laughs> like, why aren't people sitting down? I don't want a cold bagel. Bagels are for breakfast, you know? Like, I didn't get it. But you had asked me the assumptions about being a Jew and people thinking, oh, are you Ashkenazi Jew and you eat bagels? Yes, but also the same thing with being Mexican. Oh, you're Mexican you must eat tacos all the time. Or you're Mexican, you must eat spicy, cheesy food all the time. There's myths and preconceptions about both things, being a Jew and being a Mexican, and my not looking like a typical Jew, because people tell me I don't look like a Jew, and people telling me I don't look like a Mexican, and then being both things, and then being an American with a heavy Mexican accent. So I feel like... That part of me not fitting and not fitting anywhere in whichever one group of what I am has helped me be a bridge and understand other immigrants. And I realize how many more people like me there are in the world, you know? But anyway, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes. On the, yes on the assumptions about all Jews being Ashkenazi. And if you go to Mexico, you realize how strong the Middle Eastern Jewish community is and how not Ashkenazi it is. So can we extend that to maybe mm -hmm. like just the way that we're not as open-minded about the foods we assume Jews eat? Should we be more open-minded about who can and is who Jewish. can be and is Jewish? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. We have to work much harder and saying Jews aren't only white and Jews aren't only Ashkenazi. There's Asian, there's African, there's Lebanese, there's... And you can see that in a microcosm in Mexico. The Jewish community is incredibly diverse. Patty Yunich, thank you so much for being here. And I thank look you. forward to your breakfast next year. Yeah. Where we will all be seated well, and come drinking over. soup and being civilized humans. Stephanie, please come. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Am I hungry? Before I let you go start snacking on the matzah, I have one very special mazel tov for Golda Milo Manson from Toronto, who is celebrating a birthday. Golda, I promise we'll make it back to Toronto soon. Thanks to all of you for listening and happy, happy Passover. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your photos of matzah brai and your Passover leftover breakfast at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group where everyone is sharing pictures of their matzah pizza creations. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman-Ader. Thanks to Robert Scaramuccia for his excellent editing help on this episode and welcome to the team. 
Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by Zev Michelle of Princeton. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful Passover. We'll see you on the other side. Shalom, friends. Okay, this is crazy.